The Bible remains one of the most popular books in the world. But what do we know about the creation of its New Testament? In this podcast series, Archbishop Mark Coleridge, the leader of the Archdiocese of Brisbane, Australia, and a doctor of sacred scripture, focuses on the extraordinary story behind the New Testament. We hope you enjoy the words that make the world. Once again, welcome back to this, the sixth of our podcasts exploring how the New Testament came to be. In many ways, we're just touching on the mountaintops. It would take a much longer time to do the detail. In other words, to go down into the valleys. It would be well worth doing, but not here and not now. We have seen to this point the world of the synoptic gospels, as they're called, Matthew, Mark and Luke in the order in which they appear in the New Testament, though it's not the order in which they were composed. I would suggest that Mark was composed sometime in the the late 60s and that Matthew and Luke about the same time, perhaps the mid-80s. And the key event that had happened between Mark and, and Luke and Matthew is, of course, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So synoptic simply means that they look at Jesus with the same eye. That's what synoptic means. Now, there's truth in that, but it's not the total truth. Uh, There's no question that, that Luke and Matthew use Mark's text, but they are drawing upon other traditions clearly as well. And there were all kinds of texts and traditions floating around in the early church. Uh, This was a time of extraordinary fermentation. So they had various sources available to them, but one of them was undoubtedly Mark's gospel. Now, so, so in one sense, they look with the same eye, but in another sense, they are very different interpretations of, of Jesus. And that's what they are. They are essentially interpretative portraits of Jesus, keeping in mind that there is nothing in the Gospels that is pre-Easter. Even though the story is told as if there were, they begin before Easter, but Easter had happened and everything was seen through the lens of the resurrection. So in that sense, there is nothing in the Gospels before Easter. They're all Paschal texts, proclamations of the risen Christ. Now, if we turn from the world of the synoptics with all their different interpretations of Jesus and and look to the world of John, we enter a quite different world, not in any way contradictory, but but very, very different from the synoptics. First of all, chronologically, we're later. The Gospel of John is probably towards the end of the first century. So I, I am imagining that it's the last of the four Gospels written. And the world that it presents is quite different, in large part because the, the, the challenges it seeks to address, the crises that it is addressing are quite different than anything found in Matthew or Luke or Mark earlier. Not totally different, but, but, but different enough for the gospel, the fourth gospel as it's sometimes called, to, to present a very, very different 
portrait or interpretation of Jesus um, crucified and risen. For instance, in the Gospel of John, Jesus doesn't talk about the kingdom of God, the basileia to theou in Greek. This is very distinctive of the, uh, the preaching and teaching of Jesus in the synoptic tradition. But you don't find Jesus in, in John's Gospel talking about the kingdom of God. The, the focus is more upon Jesus himself. Jesus doesn't talk about God's kingdom, but talks about himself. So the question of the identity of Jesus is, is absolutely central to John's Gospel, and we'll see how that uh, works itself out in just a moment. There's also significantly less moral teaching in the Gospel of John than you find certainly in a Gospel like Matthew. So he's not so much focused upon the whoever the fourth evangelist was, and we'll come to that, not so much focused upon the moral teaching of Jesus, most of which was grounded in, in the Mosaic tradition, looking back to Moses, therefore. There's not terribly much that's uh, original to the moral teaching of Jesus as it comes to us in the Synoptic Gospels. The world of the fourth gospel is a potently symbolic world. I mean, the symbolism of the fourth gospel is quite extraordinary. Um, The symbolism of the temple in Jerusalem becoming the body of Christ, that whole interplay which works throughout the gospel, is again very, very powerful, poetically and theologically. Also the symbolism of light and darkness, you find it right from the beginning of the gospel in the famous text we call the prologue, light and darkness. So so this is a a highly symbolic work and and a work of both um, theological and literary or artistic sophistication. It always fascinates me that the Gospel of John is written in a very simple Greek. It's one of the te- if you're teaching beginners Greek, as I did years ago, one of the texts you start with is the Gospel of John, strangely, because it, it, its Greek is very simple, almost schoolboy Greek, so clearly it, it was not written by someone whose mother tongue was Greek. And yet, despite the simplicity of the Greek, the, the, the poetic and artistic sophistication is extraordinary. And theologically, it is profound in all kinds of ways. The other thing that has often struck me about the fourth evangelist, whom we call John, is that he is a great dramatist. The, 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 the sheer dramatic power of some of the scenes um, is unforgettable. And I, I'm thinking of famous scenes like the, the Samaritan woman, the man born blind, the raising of Lazarus, those great stories that come in the first half of the gospel, but also the, the, the dramatic power of, the, the, of John's passion narrative that we hear every Good Friday. Is, is just extraordinary. These are theologically exalted and complex texts, um, and, and yet there's a vividness of characterization and sometimes a vividness of detail that, that makes um, the text so dramatic and gives that sense that 
Whoever wrote this stuff was an extraordinary dramatist. Now, was it the Apostle John? It's impossible to know. That the fourth gospel and also the other texts that are called called Joanna and things like the letters and, and the book of Revelation, they do take their, their rise from a, a tradition that looks back to the um, tradition of apostolic preaching attaching to the uh, Apostle John. But it's impossible to know who exactly wrote um, every part of John's gospel because clearly by the end of the first century this text or these texts have undergone all kinds of modifications through use in catechesis and preaching and so on. So a lot of water has flowed under the bridge between the time of the Apostle John and the, um, the settling of the texts that become the Gospel of John. So, so in a sense, uh, we can say the Gospel takes its rise from the tradition of John, the Apostle John, but did he write every word of the Gospel? Almost certainly not. It's often been remarked that uh, in in the fourth gospel, you don't find many of the things that are uh, central to the other gospels. Jesus isn't a great um, teacher of parables, for instance, in the gospel of John. Um, uh, There is no transfiguration, is, is a thing that's often been remarked upon. Why does John not have uh, an episode which is so central to the Synoptic Gospels? Why is there no story of the Transfiguration? Well, the answer to that seems to be that the whole Gospel is a a Transfiguration story. And in many ways I think that's true. That, that, That moment on the mountain that you find in the Synoptic Gospels where the glory of God shines forth from the person, the body, of Jesus, that that in a sense is the is the whole point of John's gospel, that even that which seems to be shame and dishonor, supremely of course the cross, is a moment of glorification. So so the whole thing, the whole gospel, is about the glorification of Jesus, in the face of rejection and supremely the rejection that that climaxes on on the dark mountain of Calvary. Now, you have to ask, what what were the the situations, the crisis situations that the fourth gospel might be addressing in the late first century? Now, in the case of John, it's difficult to, to identify one. There seems to be a convergence of a number of... Um, critical situations that led to the composition of the of the fourth gospel. The first of them seems to be that there were false teachers floating around by this stage. And by false teachers, what I mean is teachers who were, in one way or another, denying either the divinity or the humanity of Jesus. Now, both both were tempting. 
to say he wasn't God, he was an extraordinary human being, an extraordinary teacher or miracle worker or whatever, on the one hand, or to deny his humanity. He wasn't really human. He just seemed to be human. He was really divine. So a tendency to rush to one end of the heretical spectrum or the other seems to have emerged by the end, or to be emerging by the end of the first century. Because one of the things that John is absolutely determined to do right from the beginning of his gospel, the great prologue, is to get the balance right between humanity and divinity in Jesus. In other words, as the church would come to say later, Jesus is true God and true man, truly divine and truly human. And to hold those two things in tension is to find your way onto the royal road of what eventually will come to be known as orthodoxy. So, so John, John is seeking to establish... That, that balance or tension, call it what you will, between the divinity and the humanity. So if you look at the prologue, in the beginning was the word. Now, now this is clearly echoing the start of Genesis, where we're told in the beginning. It's exactly the same word in Greek, in Arche, in Hebrew, Bereshith, the same expression. In the beginning was the word. Well, that again echoes Genesis because God spoke a word in the beginning in Genesis. Light and there was light. Jesus is called the word. The word made flesh. So, so God with us. The God who becomes one of us, becomes human. The word was with God and the word was God. So divinity is, is established. All things were made through him and and light overcome, the darkness could not overcome. John goes before him to bear witness and the true light was then rejected, we're told. But then the, the, the punchline comes in verse 14 of the prologue. The word became flesh. So there's this huge build-up, this cosmic sense of the divine logos, the word. Uh, this is divinity to the power of two, as it were. And then, with a kind of a thud almost, in verse 14, the word became flesh, humanity, and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Now, truth is a word to underline because it's one of the Johannine buzzwords, as we shall see. So, uh, no one has ever, this is the last line of the prologue, no one has ever seen God, but the only son who is in, this is a hard thing to translate, um, in the bosom of the father, says the RSV that I have in front of me, who is towards God, prostontheon, we don't know what that means exactly. Prostontheon in Greek means towards God has made God known, we're told. And what that really means, or has in, in the Greek, is that, that he has given us the exegesis or interpretation of God. He has interpreted God. Do you want to know what the real God looks like? If you want to, do you want to know what the real God means? Then you don't have to look further than the word of interpretation that we're given in Jesus who's one of us. 
So focus on him and get the balance between his divinity and humanity right and, and all doors will open, is what we get right at the start of, of the fourth gospel. Now, those who deny the humanity of Jesus are, are often called Gnostics, which a word that comes from the Greek word for knowledge, gnosis. Now, the Gnostics, they're slippery. They're hard to define or tie down, but they are undoubtedly a major influence at this time and into the second century. And it was one of the great struggles of early Christianity. Now, the Gnostics said that there was secret knowledge was the way to salvation. And it was secret knowledge, gnosis, that, that was available only to the select few. Now, this was very attractive to many people. So, again, that question of truth. And, and consider the, the question put on the lips of Pilate in the Passion narrative that we hear on Good Friday, where Pilate says to Jesus, almost mockingly, what is truth? That, that question is at the heart of the fourth gospel. And in fact, what, what John's gospel says is the truth of God is not some secret knowledge available only to a few, but the truth is love. God is truth, but yes, God is love. And that love, that truth is available to everybody, not to some elite. It is available to everybody so in other words, this is a serious attempt to, to put a bomb under the uh, seductions of Gnosticism in these early times. But interestingly, Pope Francis often speaks about new forms of Gnosticism today. So again, you see how these texts of the New Testament aren't once upon a time. They're here and now. They make worlds now. Uh, so... so, so uh, this sense of, of there being some secret knowledge available only to the privileged few, uh, this is not Christianity. It, in fact, is heresy, but it can be seductive. So what is truth? Truth is love, and love available to everyone, and love, the love that meets us where we are. So the word becomes flesh, one of us. Now, another challenge that the fourth gospel seems to be addressing concerns the relationship between early Christianity and uh, Judaism after 70, when it was, Judaism was trying to re-establish itself to find a future, as it were. So, so relations were difficult, and the polemic between Jesus and his Jewish opponents in the fourth gospel is more intense, even, than you find in the synoptic gospel. So in some sense, things must have uh, got worse so, so the fourth gospel seems to be in part addressed to unbelieving Jews who deny that Jesus is the Messiah because, again, time uh, and, again, John is keen to say Jesus is the Messiah. And just in passing, I might add that, that certainly early on in the gospel, John is very keen to say that John the Baptist isn't the Messiah because there were some people, and there still are, who, who thought and think that John the Baptist was in fact the Messiah. And that's why you find him in, the, in John's Gospel saying, don't look at me, look at him. Behold the Lamb of God. It's not me, it's him. 
But there's a group still, a um, small group, but they, they exist in the Middle East called the Mandeans, who still believe that John the Baptist is the Messiah. So it's, fairly, it's been a fairly tenacious belief. So John had to make it clear that the Baptist wasn't the Messiah. He was the one who prepared the way. So, so unbelieving Jews who deny that Jesus is the Messiah and then those who want to claim that John the Baptist is the Messiah, they're another uh, group of people who, who, um, to whom the gospel is addressed in, in order to open their eyes to see the truth of Jesus, who he really is. Now, the gospel itself, um, we have the prologue, uh, which used to come at the end of Mass every time, so it, it's a famous text. Uh, that's verses 1 to 18 of, of, of chapter 1. Then beyond that, you have in the first half of John's gospel, you have the book of signs, signs of, of God with us, all of which are pointing to the truth of who Jesus is. And here you get that procession of great stories of the Samaritan woman, the man born blind, the raising of Lazarus is the greatest of the signs. It's the, the kind of clincher. We begin with the marriage feast of Cana in the book of signs and we conclude with the, the raising of Lazarus, which looks to the resurrection of Jesus. Though they are different because Lazarus is restored to life, but Jesus is raised into a new dimension of life. So, in other words, Lazarus is resuscitated, Jesus is not resuscitated, but raised from the dead. Nonetheless, the raising of Lazarus is, is, a, is a, one of the, the, the great signs, the greatest of the signs that looks to the ultimate sign of Easter. Seven times we, hear, we get seven signs, and again, the, the, the symbolic number of seven means fullness. And we also, through this first part of the Gospel, we get seven times an I am statement. Now these, again, point to the divine status of Jesus because I am, that verb to be, in the Old Testament relates to the divine name, uh, what we call uh, Yahweh, which is uh, not really acceptable these days, but the tetragrammaton, the four letters that sometimes have been rendered Yahweh or Jehovah, come from the verb to be and really can be translated as I am or I will be or I was. Tenses work differently in Hebrew. So when Jesus says, before ever, ever Abraham was, I am, an extraordinary claim is being made for his divine identity. So it's that that needs to be perceived by a correct reading of the signs that Jesus gives in the first half of the gospel. Then in the second half of the gospel, which is often called the book of glory, it's all moving with a, a kind of an inner, irresistible unstoppable dynamic towards the crucifixion, which, which again looks to be dishonour and shame and defeat. But it's called the Book of Glory because it, it, it's, it's going from glory to glory. And, and the, the cross, the death of Jesus is recounted as a glorification. And that's the word he himself uses for what is about to happen. So because, it's, you see, it's, it's, the, it's the triumph of the love that is the truth, that is the glory. 
That's the way it works logically or theologically. So, so where you least expect the glory of God, the doxa in Greek or the kabod in Hebrew, where you least expect it is where you find it, again, if you have eyes to see. And if you think of that gospel that we hear, the passion narrative that we read on Good Friday, the majesty of Jesus in that moment is unmistakable. And again, it's, it's the majesty of God, the glory of God in the midst of all that seems most shameful and dishonourable. Chapter 21 is like an epilogue. Just as we had a prologue, we have an epilogue. But it's a, it's, it's a later edition, but it is uh, nonetheless a very important part of the Johannine tradition. So in this brief romp through the fourth gospel, you see how it is a very different world in so many ways from the world of the synoptics. And yet, and yet, even in some of the language that I have used, you see how in, in deeper ways, in subterranean ways, the, the tradition that becomes the Gospel of John uh, relates in deep and important ways to what we have seen in the Synoptic Gospels. Next time then, we shall turn to larger considerations about the New Testament, its character, and how it came to be. But for now, we will bid farewell to the Gospels, both Synoptic and Johannine. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Words That Make the World. A new episode is released weekly. You can find more podcasts from the Archdiocese of Brisbane from most major podcast providers or from our website, brisbanecatholic.org.au.